Amen. Matthew 11 and verse 11. This is Christ speaking. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets, and calling unto their fellows, and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. For his name's sake, certainly some very familiar verses here, ones that you know. I hope that even you've memorized. The very end, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And isn't Christ teaching us there that the Christian life need not be a hard and difficult and oppressive life. It is to be sure lived in uh, humbleness, humility, and gratitude, but it was never designed, and if it's understood right, it never will be an oppressive burden that just weighs you down. 
That is not, however, the text that I want to call your attention to this afternoon. I want you to look with me at verse 9, if you or 19 rather, if you would. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, and underscore this last statement that the Lord makes. It kind of stands out in this verse and in the chapter when he says, But wisdom is justified in her children. But wisdom is justified in her children. Christ plainly taught that anyone who would be true to God or who would follow Christ shouldn't expect the world's applause or approval. Especially was this true in the religious world. In the world ye shall have tribulation. That's Christ's prediction in John 16, 33. And because such a prediction comes from Christ himself, we can take it to be more than a prediction. You can take it to be a promise. In the world ye shall have tribulation. And the reason given for such a promise is also made plain by Christ in another passage. In John 15, and verse 18, he says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The animosity that is borne by the followers of Christ is traceable to a single cause, according to that statement by Christ. That single cause is hatred toward Christ himself. The world ultimately hates Christ, and the closer you get to Christ, the more devoted you are toward being true to Christ, the more you should expect to be slandered and maligned by the world. There was a sense in which no true follower of God had a chance in the days of Christ. The passage we've just read indicates to us that the greatest of all the prophets throughout the course of the history of Israel was condemned by the Jewish leaders. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil, verse 18. And you know what fate eventually uh, overcame John when he was beheaded in the prison. By way of contrast, Christ came eating and drinking, he didn't practice the kind of austerity that characterized John the Baptist. And it might be worth pointing out in connection with Christ's practice that he demonstrates for us that the practice of using the things of the world exceeds the practice of a monastic type of austerity when it comes to our holiness. A holy man is not a man who has no use for the things of the world, He's one, rather, who knows how to make right use of the things of the world. Could the religious rulers be happy with Christ, therefore? Well, hardly. Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, which is just another way of saying he's a drunkard, a friend of publicans and sinners, you see what I mean when I say you couldn't win with those Jewish leaders. There would be one thing and one thing only that could satisfy the religious rulers of Christ's day, and that was your submission to them. When they piped to you, you had to dance. When they mourned to you, 
you were expected to be sad and lament. Anything that failed to meet that standard meant that you were either possessed by a demon or you were so worldly in your practice that you were sinful. You know, religion continues to be much the same way even today, where the gospel is not understood or appreciated. The greatest dread that grips the forces of apostasy is the dread of freedom. If the doctrine of justification by faith becomes widespread, the Pope reasoned in the days of Luther, the church will lose its grip on its subjects. So you must dance to the tune that they pipe, which was tantamount to saying that the eternal destiny of your soul was in their hands. The thing, however, that I want to draw your attention to today is Christ's response to the criticisms that were being charged to both John the Baptist and to Christ himself. Christ, you see, didn't give a philosophical answer to the unjust criticisms that were commonplace in that day. He instead gave a very simple and a practical answer, one that would be grounded in the knowledge and experience of his disciples. Listen again to what he says, verse 19. But wisdom is justified in her children. Wisdom is justified in her children. I suppose you could take that statement and call it a proverb. A proverb coming right from Christ. And remember that this is Christ's response to the criticisms of the Jewish leaders. They were saying that John the Baptist was possessed with a demon and that Christ was a glutton and a wine-bibber. Christ's response, wisdom is justified in her children. The same statement's given to us in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 35, but with a very important detail added. In that verse we read, but wisdom is justified of all her children. What Christ is teaching by this statement, therefore, is something that is universal in scope, or in other words, it applies to every true child of God, every follower of Christ. The question, or perhaps I should say the challenge that we face as believers, is this. How do we do this? Wisdom is justified in her children. All right, how do we do that? We take the words of Christ to mean that his children are faced with a specific task. We are to justify wisdom. Because, as the verse says, wisdom is justified of all her children. We ordinarily think of justification as being something we are the recipients of, and so we are. But in this statement, the children of wisdom are the subjects engaging in the practice of justifying wisdom. When you think about it for a moment, I think you'll perceive that the challenge is really quite a large one and an important one. Remember again the statement in its context, John the Baptist and Christ have both been slandered by their adversaries. Christ's response is to point to his followers, the children of wisdom. They are the ones that will vindicate his teachings and his actions. They are the ones that will prove him to be what he claimed to be. 
So you begin to see, I trust, what an important task has been delegated by Christ to his followers by this statement. It is your function and mine to vindicate our Savior. That's the meaning of his saying, wisdom is justified of her children. So I want to focus on that challenge in the moments that remain today and leave it with you as a task that Christ himself assigns to you. In a word, we must take up the challenge of justifying wisdom. And in the moments that remain, I have just a couple of observations pertaining to that challenge. Consider with me, first of all, we must appreciate our obligation to take up this challenge. We have an obligation to take this up. Wisdom is justified of her children, our text reads. And from this text, we may gather that Christ has his followers in mind. Now, Christ's followers can be designated by a number of names. At times, they're called believers. At other times, they're called disciples. In the book of Acts, we read that the time came when they were called Christians in Acts 11.26. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Throughout the epistles, the followers of Christ are given the designation of saints. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, Paul writes, Romans 1.7. The thing that I find striking about our text is that it adds to the list of these designations a title, so to speak, that is found nowhere else in the New Testament, apart from the parallel text in Luke 7.35. In that verse and in the verse before us just now, we are being referred to as the children of wisdom. You see the connection? Wisdom is justified of her children. It follows, therefore, that Christ's followers are the children of wisdom. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? You ever thought about such a designation? When somebody asks you what you are, they're probably wondering and asking, are you a Baptist or are you a Presbyterian? Are you Reformed? Are you premillennial, independent, Bible-believing? Are you a fundamentalist, an evangelical? Well, the next time you're called on to give yourself some designation that specifies what you are, you may want to refer yourself as a child of wisdom wonder how that would fly. <laughs> of course, the person making the inquiry may come away with the mistaken notion that you're a member of some cult. His misimpression notwithstanding, this is a designation assigned by Christ. Now, you need to keep in mind that this designation assigned to his followers by Christ is not assigned because Christians at the time of their salvation are wiser than sinners who reject the gospel. When you read Romans 1, Paul's description of mankind in general in a state of sin, one of the phrases he uses to describe sinful man is that they are without understanding. 
He says it again in chapter 3. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Sinful man, you see, is never described as being wise. Indeed, he's described as being willfully ignorant of God. Now, man, in his sinful pride, thinks he's wise when, in fact, he's foolish. That's God's estimate of a man that says in his heart that there is no God. I know I put this picture before you in the past, but it illustrates the foolishness of the God denier and the Christ rejecter. Picture a man standing out in the parking lot of the church at high noon with the sun directly overhead on a clear day, Everything he sees bears witness to the fact that the sun is shining. He could see the church. He could see the trees. He could see the grass or the sky. He could see the homes next to the church. And not only can he see everything that is lit up by the sun, but he can feel the warmth of the sun as well. Everything about him and everything within him testifies to the reality that it's a bright and sunny day. But in his wisdom, he puts his hands over his eyes and he says to you, you can't prove to me the sun is shining. That's just your opinion. And there are many opinions. Why should I subscribe to your opinion? And following such a foolish claim, he then goes his way, flattering himself that he's wise. And that those that try to convince him the sun is shining are biased fanatics. Well, the man himself is willfully blind. What I've just described is your heritage and mine in terms of our wisdom. You and I were both as willfully ignorant as the next sinner in our rebellion against God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14 and verse 1 He knows better, according to Paul in Romans 1, but he says it anyway. He says it because he desires it. He says it because he's in rebellion and seeks to enthrone himself as the master of his own destiny. How is it then that you and I and all the followers of Christ could ever gain such a designation as the children of wisdom? Paul addresses that very issue in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And what he says in essence is this. You and I are the children of wisdom because we've submitted ourselves to the foolishness of God. Listen to what he writes. This is 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 and following. We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is our wisdom, then, that we submit to what is here called God's foolishness, which means, in effect, that we submit to Christ crucified. God's foolishness, of course, can only be designated foolishness by a proud and sinful world. What we submit to by submitting to God's foolishness is, in fact, the truth of reality. 
Here then is our wisdom. We face the reality of the guilt of our sin. We face the reality that sin deserves death. We face the reality that hell is real and we're bound for it. And then we face the reality that one came from heaven to become one of us, that he might represent us, and as our substitute, live for us and fulfill the righteousness for us that we failed to fulfill for ourselves, and then pay the debt that we owed by being crucified for us. We speak wisdom, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.6, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. You know, it doesn't bother me and it shouldn't bother you too much to be considered a fool by the world so long as you know who the real fool is. We submit to God's foolishness. How then did we ever gain such a designation, children of wisdom? Well, we gained it by the power of the gospel. We gained it because in his full, free, and sovereign grace, God sent his spirit to pull away our hands from our eyes and to make us see the reality of sin's guilt. We gained it by being renewed in our wills in such a way that we found ourselves willing and desirous of fleeing to Christ to the saving of our souls. We have come to see and admire God's wisdom in the gospel. This is what makes us children of wisdom. We glory in the genius of divine wisdom that could devise such a plan for poor, vile, and guilty sinners to be redeemed and reconciled to God. We marvel at the heart of divine wisdom which led Christ to leave heaven's glory and condescend so low as to become one of us in order to die in our place. It becomes our wisdom then to disown the world's wisdom. It is our wisdom to disown our own righteousness in order that we might gain Christ's righteousness. And because we are now children of wisdom, we face the task that the text puts upon us. Wisdom is justified of her children, our text says. Knowing as we now know something of what the designation children of wisdom means and how such a designation has come about, we must acknowledge that we're debtors to God's wisdom and the grace and mercy that flow from that wisdom. We're obligated as the children of wisdom to do what the text calls upon us to do, which is to justify God's wisdom. And this leads to my next and my final point. Having seen something of our obligation to take up the challenge, consider with me next and finally, we must engage in the right action in order to meet the challenge. Wisdom is justified of her children, Christ says. Very well then, since we are the children of wisdom, the task is assigned to you and me to justify wisdom. And how is that to be done? Well, I'll point out just a couple of ways. 
we may justify wisdom by forming a right estimate of Christ. This is what the Jews of Christ's day refused to do. And it didn't matter what Christ said or what Christ did. He taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. His word could silence his adversaries. They may come to him with the express purpose of trying to catch him in his words, but their efforts were thwarted every single time. They eventually gave up trying to catch Christ in his words, but they still refused to face the truth of who he was. It wouldn't matter what miracles Christ performed. Still, they refused to acknowledge him. I've always been amazed at that section in John's Gospel, the scrutiny which was applied to the man who was healed of his blindness in John chapter 9, the way they interrogated him. They asked him what happened. Then they asked his parents if he was really born blind. Then they asked the healed blind man again what happened to him. They're desperate in their search of an explanation because they don't want to acknowledge Christ. And when the healed blind man points out the obvious to them, that since the world began was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? Rather than submit to the implications of the miracle, the Jews instead conclude that this blind man was born in sins and must be cast out of the synagogue. We could say that the Jews of that generation refused God's wisdom. And when Christ would perform a greater miracle still, and would two chapters later in John's Gospel raise Lazarus from the dead... Still, they would not justify God's wisdom. They would plot a way to put Christ and Lazarus to death instead. In contrast to such hard-heartedness that flies in the face of the obvious, the true children of wisdom will justify wisdom by simply acknowledging the truth of Christ. When we hear his words, therefore, And we conclude with that band of soldiers sent to arrest him that never man spake like this man. We justify wisdom by confessing him to be the Son of God. When we behold him stilling the stormy sea, we justify wisdom by confessing him to be sovereign over the elements of the world. When we behold him casting a legion of demons out of a man who could not be subdued, we justify wisdom by confessing him to be the ruler over all spirits. When we behold him nailed to a cross at the very point of death, crying out with a loud voice, indicating that he did not die overborne by death, but he died rather a powerful death, we join with the centurion who was on hand to hear that cry and confess, like that centurion, truly this man was the Son of God. And when we behold him risen from the dead, we justify wisdom by confessing that not only was he the Son of Man, but he was the Son of God, declared so by the power of his resurrection. So we justify wisdom by confessing Christ's person. Thou art the Christ, the
the son of the living God, Peter would confess. And my, wasn't that his wisdom then in that moment? And in that confession then, he would justify wisdom. In our confession that he's the Christ, we justify wisdom the same way. The same could be said for his work. We justify wisdom when we come to understand his strange design in rescuing poor, vile, and guilty sinners by his atoning death. This is something that his disciples couldn't even do initially. Though it was explained to them, they couldn't understand it. It was above them. It was beyond them. They were repulsed by the very notion We have the benefit of the entire New Testament as well as thousands of years of church history to explain his atoning work to us. So when we bow before him, confessing our sins, acknowledging that the wages of our sins is death, agreeing with him that sin merits condemnation, and then we plead the merits of his shed blood as the grounds for the forgiveness of our sins, We, in effect, justify wisdom. And could I point out here that in order to justify his wisdom, we must complete the process by counting our sins to be forgiven. There are those, you know, who see some value to stewing in their sins. They take it, I suppose, to be a badge of their humility and more becoming to their sanctification to wallow in their guilt. They fail to justify wisdom who fail to count their sins nailed to the cross where they were atoned for. Now, all of what I've described so far in terms of justifying wisdom can be practiced in the place of worship. Arguably, when we come to church on Sunday, we come here to justify wisdom. It's in the place of worship, you see, that we confess Christ to be the Son of Man and the Son of God. It's in the place of worship that we bow before the Lord to thank Him with heartfelt praise for so great salvation purchased at such a high price. In our worship, therefore, we have opportunity to justify wisdom. And let me say here that when we arrive in glory and are joined with those that have gone ahead, we will spend eternity justifying wisdom when we engage in the heavenly hymn that sings, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So we justify wisdom in our worship when we confess Jesus to be the Christ and when we ascribe praise and glory and honor to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Let me say in closing that there's also a practical way that we justify wisdom. We justify wisdom when we live in this world in the light of what we are and what we have in Christ. Many false religions, you know, will strive for some form of holiness. You can find cults in this nation that might be labeled conservative cults. They believe in morality. They believe in the family. They hold to standards of decency. 
They may justify wisdom to a small extent insofar as they recognize that there are serious consequences to sin, and it is in their best interest, therefore, to avoid sin, but they can never truly or fully justify wisdom. Wisdom, you see, becomes justified by the children of wisdom when they walk humbly with the Lord. You won't find a trace of self-righteousness among those that justify wisdom. They will reflect, rather, the spirit of that larger catechism answer we rehearsed a little while ago. They will never manifest a holier-than-thou attitude. They walk humbly with God because they're wise enough to know that in themselves they can never merit anything from God. The only thing we ever have earned or could earn is everlasting damnation. And yet we're forgiven. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have assurance that God accepts us in Christ, and therefore we have assurance that heaven is our home and everlasting life is our portion. And in the light of the simple and sublime truths of the gospel, we gain a peace that passes understanding and a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. When we manifest this peace and joy and accompany it with a life that strives for holiness out of a sense of gratitude for sins forgiven, we justify wisdom. We justify wisdom because we vindicate the very thing that God in his wisdom designed to accomplish in our lives. I like the way it's expressed in a familiar text in the Old Testament In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, we read, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. So when we do justly, and love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, in the light of his glory and grace, we justify wisdom. And so I trust that you'll be able and willing to take up the challenge this week of justifying wisdom. When Christ was slandered with John the Baptist, his reply was to point to his followers that the world might see what would be accomplished in them. Wisdom is justified of her children. You know, that puts you and me on the spot, so to speak. And yet it shouldn't be an uncomfortable place to be. All we're doing is disowning the world's wisdom that we might submit to what the world considers the foolishness of God. All we really need to do is tend to our souls with the use of the gospel of Christ so that the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. And as we strive for uprightness and honesty and integrity, tempered by humility from hearts that are filled with praise and thanksgiving, because of the interest we've gained in Christ, we will demonstrate by our lives the wisdom of God's holiness, the wisdom of God's love, and the wisdom behind so great salvation. Wisdom is justified of her children. You're a child of wisdom. Christ is made unto you 
wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. I trust, therefore, that you'll rise to the task that's assigned to you by Christ himself, this task of justifying his wisdom. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for showing us thy wisdom. And even though it's regarded as foolishness by the world, O Lord, by thy grace we identify with God and with his word and not with a sinful Christ-rejecting world. So Lord, help us to take up this challenge By the words we speak and by the lives we live, may we indeed justify wisdom to the honor and glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.